Welcome back to our New Testament survey. We are working our way through the books of the New Testament. One book each week, and this evening we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We have looked at all four Gospels uh, and the uh, Acts of the Apostles, or the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ through His Apostles. And last week we began to look uh, at the epistles, and we looked at Romans first. So this week we look at 1 Corinthians. And each book that we look at, we've been asking ourselves uh, a number of questions about it to begin with. Uh, we ask ourselves, who is the human author? We recognize that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the author of these works, since these are Holy Scripture and inspired uh, by the Spirit. Uh, but we ask, who is the earthly author, the human author through whom the Spirit worked? First uh, Corinthians, uh, the author is Paul. And so as we spoke last week, uh, Paul penned 13 uh, epistles that are in the New Testament. Uh, a number of these were written to churches. Some of them were written to individuals. So this is uh, the first epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, he identifies himself as the author right there in verse 1. Uh, where he writes, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So uh, Paul identifies himself right there at the beginning. This is not uh, disputed in any way. Uh, everybody recognizes that Paul is the author. The next question we ask ourselves is, when was the letter written? Uh, this one was written uh, sometime probably in the spring of 55 A.D., uh, so roughly 25 years um, after Christ's death and resurrection, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, we know uh, some things about when it was written based on historical events, based on a few things that Paul says in the letter, particularly at the end of the letter in chapter 16, uh, where he mentions uh, the upcoming Passover feast, and we know what time of year that was, so we know it was before that that the letter was penned. Uh, we know it from... Uh, his missionary journeys and records that we have that we can pretty clearly identify would have been written in 55 AD. So it's pretty early uh, in the history of the church. And as we look at the letters, there's an additional question that we have to ask ourselves that we didn't ask uh, of some of the other books that we've looked at. And we talked about this last week, so I just want to review it a little bit for those who weren't here. And that is uh, the letters, the epistles, uh, both the ones of Paul, Peter, John, uh, here in the New Testament are letters. Uh, they're letters that are written, like I said, some of them to a church, some to an individual, some to a group of people, uh, but they are letters. But there's a certain type of letter. They're an epistle, and that is, it's a letter that was meant to be read by uh, the intended audience to whom it was sent, but it was also intended to be read by others. It was a sort of public letter. Uh, and we see this in many of Paul's letters where he tells people uh, to read this, but then to also send it on to somebody else and read the letter he sent to somebody else. So these letters were intended to be read uh, by a wider audience than just the immediate audience to whom they are addressed. Uh, we see that even at the beginning of this letter in verse 2, he says that it is addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So there's his initial audience, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So uh, the letter is addressed to the church in Corinth, but he has a wider uh, audience in mind, and that is all of those uh, who in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So this letter 
was written to us. Uh, we are those who call on the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord. The other thing about epistles that we have to ask ourselves is, and we talked about this last week, is that they are occasional letters. And what we mean by that is that there was some reason why the letter was written. There was an occasion uh, that stirred up the author to write the letter. Uh, when we looked at Romans last week, we said that occasion was a little bit different than what most of them are because that one originated with the author rather than with those who received the letter. And the occasion of Romans was that Paul intended to journey through Rome on to Spain on a missionary journey. And so he was writing a letter to the church in Rome uh, to lay out for them uh, what his ministry was all about, a pretty clear and thorough articulation of the gospel of justification by faith, uh, to convince them to partner with him and to send him on this missionary journey. Most of the letters, though, are occasioned by something that was happening in the lives of the recipients of the letter. Such is the case with 1 Corinthians. And so uh, when we come to a letter like this, we have to ask ourselves, what was happening in the church at Corinth that caused Paul uh, to feel the necessity to write and send them this letter? And as we said, uh, we don't have the other half of the conversation. We have the answer. We don't necessarily have the questions. And so we have to determine from the content of the letter uh, what the situation was that he was addressing. And we'll see that this evening uh, as we work through 1 Corinthians. Because these letters are occasional letters written to address a specific occasion in the life of the recipient, they are what we called last week applied theology. Uh, they are not meant uh, Romans is kind of an anomaly, but even Romans, they are not meant to be a full-orbed systematic theology fully expressing everything that the Apostle Paul believed or taught. They are a theology applied to the specific situation which he is addressing. Uh, but they're very, very helpful because uh, human nature is the same and is consistent. There is nothing new under the sun. And so churches today experience some of the same situations. And so these letters are very helpful for us. And that's the reason that God saw fit to include them in his scriptures. So as we look uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, we will see uh, the occasions, the things that Paul is dealing with in the church in Corinth, but we'll also see some themes uh, recurring throughout the letter. Obviously, they relate to uh, the reason why he wrote the letter, but the themes of 1 Corinthians would be the themes of unity in the church, love for one another, uh, and church order. Uh, how the church should order its affairs, and particularly its worship services, and then uh, the doctrine of the resurrection. So just as in Romans, uh, the major doctrine that Paul addressed was justification. In 1 Corinthians, it is resurrection, and particularly the resurrection of Christ, but also the resurrection of all those who believe at the end of time. So again, uh, as we outline the book, uh, letters, we said, were, are particular, just like letters that we write today may have a, a greeting, a salutation at the beginning, a body to the letter, and then a closing uh, remarks and uh, a final greeting. And so these letters are the same way. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 is the opening of the letter, which includes Paul identifying himself as the author, identifying the Corinthians as his audience, and then offering a prayer of thanksgiving for them uh, before he gets into the body of the letter. 
the body of the letter can be divided into two major sections, uh, and this has to do with the occasion for which he wrote it. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter 6, uh, are Paul dealing with issues, particularly two major issues, that were reported to him by someone in the church. So someone there in the church had given a report to Paul of some of the things that were happening, and so he is addressing those things, particularly division in the church and moral and ethical issues within the church body. The, then moving on into chapter 7, uh, all the way through chapter 15, uh, Paul seems to be answering questions that were given to him by a letter the church sent to him. And so we see him responding uh, to their questions, answering their questions. And the topics that he addresses in that section are marriage, Christian liberty, uh, worship in the church, and then this doctrine of the resurrection. And then when we get to chapter 16, uh, that is the closing of the letter with his final uh, greetings and salutations. So as we look at the opening of the letter, we note, as we've already said, that Paul identifies himself as the author. He also identifies someone who is with him there in verse 1, Sosthenes, our brother. Now, that name is only mentioned once elsewhere in Scripture, and it's significant that he mentions it here because Sosthenes is mentioned also in the book of Acts when Paul was traveling on his missionary journeys and spent some time in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is there ministering in Corinth and uh, there is a bit of a dust-up with the Jews in town uh, and they they don't like what Paul is doing. Uh, He encounters opposition from them virtually everywhere he goes. Uh, But there in Corinth... He's in opposition with the Jewish leaders in the city of Corinth, and and one of them, who is the proconsul of the region, uh, speaks up and kind of tries to bring uh, some peace to the situation. Uh, But then what happens is um, that Paul uh, is not in any trouble, so to speak, but in verse 17 of Acts chapter 18, it says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogues. This is a Jewish man who's in Corinth. He is in charge of the synagogue. The Greeks took him and beat him before the judgment seat, Uh, but Gallio took no notice of these things. So that's the only other mention of this man in Scripture. But here, in this letter that Paul sends back to Corinth, Sosthenes seems to have left Corinth and is now accompanying Paul and is with him in Ephesus as he writes this letter. Uh, So that's interesting uh, that this man who was the ruler of the synagogue apparently has now become a believer, is one of Paul's ministry partners, uh, a brother in Christ, and Paul adds his name to this letter as he sends it back to Sosthenes' hometown there in Corinth. Now, Paul then addresses, as we said in verse 2, the letter to the church in Corinth, but also to a broader audience, including all those who call on the name of the Lord. Uh, And then he offers a typical Pauline greeting of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 4 through 9, he offers his prayer of thanksgiving uh, for the church there in Corinth, which is an interesting uh, prayer that he offers given 
how the rest of the letter goes. Uh, but he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the church in Corinth, Paul says, and he says he's thankful to God for this, has received a great blessing from God uh, in spiritual gifts. They have not come short in any gift. So they have all of the gifts of the Spirit in abundance in the church. Uh, and it's amazing that he offers this prayer of thanksgiving considering uh, how severely he's going to rebuke them for misusing those gifts. Uh, so that just goes to show you that uh, even though the church is messed up, it's misusing the gifts the Holy, the, the Holy Spirit has given them, Paul still considers them brothers and is thankful uh, that they have received those gifts from God. So then he begins to address the situation in the church in verse 10, and he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that you, there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he's issuing a, a plea for unity in the church, that they would uh, not be divided in this way. And then he says in verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So he's had this report uh, given to him from someone uh, that is familiar with the situation, uh, that there are factions and contentions and division uh, in the church. And so he goes on to describe uh, what that is, that the Corinthian believers have segregated themselves into little groups, some of them saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, uh, of Peter, uh, I'm of Christ. Uh, those ones are really feeling superior to everybody else. Uh, so they've got all these little factions and groups who are identifying with a certain uh, apostle, a certain leader in the church. And, and Paul says that this division among them is not good, that they're uh, looking down on each other on the basis of who baptized them or who taught them the gospel for the first time. Uh, and so Paul uh, downplays his own role in baptizing in the church. He doesn't downplay the issue of baptism, but he downplays his own role uh, in baptizing people and declares um, that he was not sent to baptize. He says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's sort of his thesis statement for this first section where he's dealing with this division in the church. Uh, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man, uh, the foolishness uh, that from the world's perspective of the preaching of the gospel uh, being the means that God would use to save his people. Uh, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved, even though the world thinks it's foolish. And so uh, he goes on 
to continue to describe this distinction between uh, worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. And he says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So uh, he's making this argument that uh, God's wisdom is completely different uh, than the wisdom of the world and that even that which appears foolish is better than the wisdom of the world. Even that which appears weak uh, in Christ is better than the strength that the world might glory in. In chapter 2, then, as he continues um, this argument and continues this subject, uh, he talks about uh, strength and wisdom and foolishness, and he talks about um, the preaching of the gospel as he declared it to them in Corinth. He says in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, uh, again, he's saying it's the content of the gospel that's important. Not the eloquence of the speaker, uh, not the rhetorical style it's the content of the gospel uh, that is the important issue that's at stake here. And so, what is that content of the gospel? Well, he says in verses 7 and 8, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So, uh, it's the gospel is the message of the crucifixion of Christ, uh, the substitutionary atonement uh, by which we are saved. And had, Paul says, the, the rulers of the world known that that was God's plan, they wouldn't have done what they did. Uh, but that didn't appear to be wisdom to them, that, that God would save people uh, through Christ dying, through the Messiah, the promised one, dying. But Paul says that is the mystery uh, the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So we saw that last week uh, at the end of the book of Romans as he spoke about the mystery which has now been made known. And we talked about this idea that the gospel was there in the Old Testament. Uh, he says in Galatians, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. So the gospel was there, uh, but in large part it was hidden. It was not made uh, plain and clear the way it is in the New Testament. And so it goes back again to that quote from Augustine that uh, the New Testament is in the old, uh, hidden, but in the new, the Old Testament is now revealed and made plain to us. Uh, and so this idea of the mystery of God is a recurring theme that we see throughout Paul's letters, uh, particularly Romans and 1 Corinthians. He talks about, in verse 13, the wisdom that is from above. He says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so Paul says the wisdom uh, that he is proclaiming as he preaches the gospel is not man's wisdom, but it is wisdom that has been given to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be a major theme of the book of 1 Corinthians as Paul deals later with spiritual gifts, uh, as he deals with the wisdom of God revealed through the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit plays a vital role uh, in all of that. And so by the end of chapter 2, he has kind of laid the groundwork uh, for 
dealing with this idea of unity in the church, unity in the faith. Uh, And so now he goes on, beginning in chapter 3, to deal with uh, the divisions that they are experiencing in the church. And notice as we look at the beginning of chapter 3, we'll read the first four verses, um, there's a key word that is repeated multiple times that should clue us in uh, to what's going on. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So you hear the word carnal repeated multiple times. Uh, He's saying that they're not being led by the Spirit. They're being led by their flesh. They're being led by earthly wisdom. They're not being led by the Spirit of God. And that's the reason that these divisions are happening. These factions have arisen. Uh, And so then in verse 6, he declares that it's not Paul or Apollos uh, that is who they should be celebrating. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so he's using this metaphor of planting a crop in a field, and he's saying, yeah, maybe I put the seeds in the ground, and Apollos put some water on it, but neither one of us could make it grow. That's the Holy Spirit's work. So if you're going to glory in what has been done among you, you need to glory in the work of the Spirit, not in the laborers who were working in the field. And so he uses this metaphor uh, um, of the Spirit uh, being the one who should get the credit and of the, the leaders just being laborers who are working and not worthy of the glory. Uh, He says that in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So now uh, he begins to mix his metaphors a little bit, but he says, these people that you're aligning yourself with, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, of Peter, we're just laborers. Don't glory in us. Glory in Christ, glory in the Spirit who is at work among you. He says, you are God's field, you are God's building. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about laying a foundation. And that foundation, of course, is Christ, the only foundation that is worth building upon. Uh, He then again in verses 18 and 19 uh, speaks of the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So he tells them, don't boast in men, don't boast in me or Peter or Apollos, boast in Christ alone. That is where your boast should be, uh, for it is God through Christ and working in you through the Holy Spirit uh, that has brought these things about. The leaders, he says, are nothing more than servants. They're laborers, they are servants. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're servants of Christ working for him But he's the one that should get the glory. Uh, And again, he mentions the mysteries of God, that they are stewards uh, of the mysteries of God. They are taking care of the gospel, stewarding it, uh, spreading it abroad 
to the churches. But the problem in Corinth is that these people in the church in Corinth have given in to their pride. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So he said, all these blessings, these spiritual gifts that you have in abundance, those things were given to you by the Holy Spirit. What are you bragging about? In verse 18, he says, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Pride is obviously uh, an issue that they are dealing with uh, here in the church. Paul then uh, uses the metaphor or the idea that he is a parent uh, in verse 15. Uh, for though you have, might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So he uses the metaphor now of, of him as a parent uh, taking care of some children. And then it's kind of humorous, actually, because he said some of you are, are puffed up with pride as if I'm not going to come to you. And in verse 19, he says, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know. Not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> That's what my dad always said. That seems to be what the apostle was telling the church. Um, you're, you're letting your pride get the best of you. You've got to stop bragging in yourself, bragging in men, uh, and bragging in the gifts that you've received. They're gifts that you received, not because of anything in you, but because of the work of the Spirit. So he would much rather come to them uh, in a spirit of love and gentleness rather than having to come and discipline them. So he's addressed these issues of division. He'll come back to that again uh, a little bit later, but he moves on then to address uh, some issues of moral and ethical nature in chapters 5 and 6. Um, again, he's had a report that has been brought to him in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So uh, he's gotten this report. Not only is there division in the church, but there is sin in the camp. If we think back to Old Testament examples of the nation of Israel, uh, when sin, uh, different individuals within the camp uh, were engaging in significant sin, that became a major problem for the entire camp. Uh, we think of Achan and different instances in the Old Testament. That's what's happening here. There is sin in the church, uh, and it's not being dealt with. In fact, Paul says in verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So for some reason, they're actually proud of the sin that's being committed in their midst. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't know if they're, if they're looking at it and going, oh, this sin that this guy's committing, but look how gracious we're being. We're, we're loving on him. We're extending grace to him. Or if they're proud of their, their supposed liberty in Christ to, to do these sins, uh, but they're proud of these things. And he says, you should be ashamed uh, that this sort of sin is happening. You should be mourning over this sin and dealing with it, uh, not being proud of it. Interestingly, then, uh, we see in verse 3 and again in verse 12, uh, contrary to what many would have us believe, that we are actually to judge 
we are to judge sin, uh, especially in the midst of the church. He says in verse 3, For I indeed as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. Uh, and then down in verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? So Paul's saying we, we have to deal with sin. We have to call sin what it is. Uh, we have to make a judgment that this is wrong. This man is sleeping uh, with his stepmother. This is a sin. We have to call it that. Uh, we can't let it slide. It has to be dealt with. And so Paul moves on to instruct them uh, and how they are to exercise church discipline in this case. And of course, uh, we see in verse 5 that the purpose of church discipline, uh, he says, is to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So even church discipline uh, that goes to this extreme level of having to turn someone over to Satan, the purpose of that church discipline uh, is redemption. The purpose of that discipline is the man's salvation, uh, not simply uh, to be harsh with sin, but to seek to bring that sinner to repentance and to salvation. Uh, he then goes on in verse 6, six through 8 uh, to talk about, um, to say, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, so this idea of leaven is one that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels. Uh, and Paul even uh, refers back to um, the Passover. He, he says in verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So if we think back to the Exodus and the Passover celebration that celebrated the Exodus, uh, they left Egypt in a hurly, hurry. They were supposed to get rid of all the leaven in their homes and eat only unleavened bread. And so throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the idea of leaven to represent sin, working its way through uh, a person's life. And here Paul says it happens in the church. The church is the body. It's the loaf of bread. The leaven represents sin that works its way through the whole loaf. If we let this sin continue and we don't deal with it, it will work its way through the church and result in other sins as well. And because Christ has been sacrificed for us as our Passover lamb, uh, we're not to entertain sin in the midst of his body. We are to get rid of it. Uh, and so that's why this church discipline must take place. Then he moves on in chapter 6 uh, to begin dealing with uh, some issues of ethics that have to do with lawsuits that are happening. Uh, people in the church suing one another, ending up in court uh, before a pagan judge in order to settle their disputes. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against a brother, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Uh, so the, the disputes will happen. Paul doesn't even really reprimand them for the disputes so much as how they dealt with them. He recognizes that there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disputes. Uh, he condemns the way they settle them, the fact that they go before a pagan, unbelieving judge rather than settling it amongst believers uh, in love. And so he says that they should uh, settle these matters between themselves. They should even accept wrong to their own person, to their own possessions, in order to settle a matter with a brother uh, rather than to go 
before an unbelieving judge to have these things settled. He then moves on uh, in the latter half of chapter 6, chapter six uh, to once again deal with uh, some sexual sin. Uh, he says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Uh, so he begins once again to deal with uh, the sexual sin that is so rampant in Corinth and is finding its way into the church. And, and he had said before that they were carnal, they weren't spiritual, they were being led by the flesh rather than the spirit. But here he's making the argument that that doesn't mean that we can just say, as the Gnostics might have, that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, and therefore we can excuse what's done in the flesh or ignore it in any way. He says, no, uh, your body is being redeemed along with your soul. And so we are to flee from this sort of sexual immorality, he says in verse 18. And then he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So it's the whole man that is being saved and being redeemed. Uh, we can't excuse what we do in the flesh and say, well, that's the flesh, it's unimportant, it doesn't matter, or it's just the flesh, it's going to sin anyway. What's important is the spirit. Paul says both are important. What happens in your body is important because you have been bought with a price. God is redeeming your body. Uh, and this subject will come up again later in the book as he deals with the issue of the resurrection in chapter 15. In chapter 7, uh, he then addresses the topic of marriage. Uh, he says at the beginning of chapter 7, we're now transitioning to him responding to the letter they sent him. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So he's now answering questions that they've asked him. And so in chapter 7, he deals with the subject of marriage. Uh, in verse 4, uh, he makes this point, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So he's dealing here with uh, marital relations between the husband and the wife as he's been dealing with sexual immorality in the church. Uh, he now deals with the marriage bed and how that relationship should uh, work itself out. Uh, in verses 10 through 16, uh, he addresses the issue of divorce. And then in chapter 17 through, or chap verse 17 through 24, uh, he, he kind of almost seems to shift gears away from marriage and divorce now to begin uh, talking about uh, everyone walking in whatever calling he found, found himself in when he was saved. Uh, if he was an uncircumcised Gentile, to remain uncircumcised. If he was a circumcised Jew, to remain a circumcised Jew. If he was a slave, to remain a slave. If he was free, to remain free. Uh, it almost seems like he's uh, changed subjects. Then in verse 25 through 40, he deals with uh, kind of the contrast between being single and being married and, and should you get married or should you stay single and, and he uh, seems to argue that whichever case you're in, stay in that case at this point. But in all of these things, they're all related uh, from the beginning of the chapter to the end. Uh, in all of these things, he is encouraging people to live worthy of the gospel and to consider how their actions in relation to their spouse, in relation to uh, other People, like if their spouse is an unbeliever even in the middle of the chapter when he's dealing with the subject of divorce, 
when he's dealing with Gentile versus Jew, with slave versus free, all of these things, he's saying you need to consider how your actions affect others around you. It can even affect their salvation. He, he argues that a saved, believing person who is married to an unbelieving spouse can live in such a way that it may result in the salvation of their spouse. And so it is important how you live your life in these various circumstances because your actions have consequences in your relationships with other people. In chapter 8, then, uh, he begins uh, to address a subject that will occupy him through a good bit of the remainder of the book. He says, Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. It's not the subject of things offered to idols that is important here. It's the issue of love, uh, which is a recurring theme through the rest of the book. It's really the theme that's been through the previous section of the book, too. If we consider our actions and relations to others, uh, we are to consider uh, what we do as we're loving other people. But here he begins to deal with the issue of Christian liberty. Uh, and he says that our liberty should be restrained by our love for others. He says in verse 9, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Uh, then he goes on, uh, in, in verse 4, he had mentioned... Um, he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. He seems to be echoing the language there of Deuteronomy 6.4, which, of course, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. So, again, it's back to this issue of love. Are you loving God? Are you loving your neighbor? Uh, and and so how does that affect your exercise of your Christian liberty? And then he offers himself up in chapter 9 as an example of one who denies himself for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Uh, down in verse 23 of chapter 9, he says, after he talks about how he does not exercise all these rights that he could have as an apostle, verse 23 says, Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So he denies himself. Uh, he tempers his own, restricts his own liberties, his own rights as a believer, as an apostle, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of those that he is trying to minister the gospel to. Then in chapter 10, uh, he begins to deal with um, the example of Old Testament Israel. And, and this is fascinating to me. If we consider who he is writing this letter to, the church in Corinth, which is largely made up of Gentiles, Greeks, Roman citizens in the, in the city of Corinth. And he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So he's talking about Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus, led by Moses through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. 
he's writing to a Gentile church and he says, all our fathers did these things. Those were the Israelites, the Israelite patriarchs. And he tells the Gentile church in Corinth, those are your spiritual ancestors. You are the body of Christ. You are the church of God. That's your history. It's not that Israel and the church are two separate things. You are God's family, so that is your spiritual ancestry. And so then he goes on to talk about how these uh, things happened to them. He says in verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So he says we're to learn from their example uh, what happened to Old Testament Israel, that we would learn not to follow them into idolatry uh, as they did. And so, uh, again, he says in verse 12 uh, that they have to deal with this issue of pride. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, So, you have to check your pride. You have to be cautious that you don't fall uh, into this idolatry into which Old Testament Israel fell. And so he, in verse 14, uh, he encourages them to flee from idolatry. He had told them earlier to flee from sexual immorality. Now he says to flee from idolatry. Uh, he says in verse 21, um, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Uh, And he talks about how Old Testament Israel had provoked the Lord to jealousy with their idolatry uh, and had been punished for it. Uh, And he says that we are not to engage in that sort of idolatry. And, And he says that what the Gentiles do, what the pagans do, and the sacrifices they're making in their temples, they are offering sacrifices to demons. And he says, you cannot participate. You can't take the Lord's Supper on Sunday, commune with Christ, and then go and commune with demons on another day of the week. Uh, It doesn't work that way. You have been bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You belong to Christ. Uh, So you you cannot uh, join yourself to a demons uh, and to that sort of worship. He then uh, continues in the second half of the chapter, to talk about doing all things to the glory of God. And he says in verse 23 and 24, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So this is kind of a key verse uh, to what he has been talking about through the entire book. Uh, whether it is uh, the issue of your Christian liberty, meat offered to idols, whether it is your relationship with your spouse or your neighbor, uh, with others in the church, let each one not seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Uh, we are to look for the good of others and not for act selfishly for ourselves. And that was the problem in Corinth. That's what was happening. People were acting selfishly and full of pride and not thinking about others. Uh, and so then when he gets down towards the end of the chapter and he says, therefore, in verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Not about you. It's about glorifying Christ, glorifying God in all that we do. It's about seeking the good of others. The problem was each of the Corinthians was seeking their own good, their own glory. Uh, It was all about them rather than being about Christ and about others and how they could serve others. Then 
of course, beginning in verse uh, chapter 11 uh, through the chapter 14, he deals with worship in their church and, and the many problems that the Corinthians had uh, in their church. Uh, a lot of this is very confusing, and people disagree over what some of it means. Uh, the first half of chapter 11, uh, he is dealing with uh, this issue of head coverings, but the bigger issue here really seems to be gender roles in the church. Uh, and how men and women are conducting themselves during the worship services of the church. And he roots his arguments for how they should conduct themselves based in uh, Genesis 2, in the creation, uh, that man was created first and then woman. Woman was made to help man, and so she should not usurp his authority. And so he's basing his argument on how they ought to order their worship services based on uh, the creation account back in Genesis the second half of the chapter, verses 17 through 34, uh, he's dealing with the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, in verse 19 uh, is an interesting verse because of all the conflict and dissension that they are experiencing. But he says, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Uh, so he's saying, the fact that there are these divisions among you, the fact that some of you may be even believing heresies, these things must take place in order that the truth can be vindicated. And we see that in the history of the church, even down to the modern day, as we think about all of the creeds and confessions of the church. Most of them arose out of conflicts in which the church was having to refute heresy. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all the way up to the Second London Baptist Confession, a lot of these things rose out of periods in church history when the church was having to combat different heresies, different false teachings. The controversy itself was not a bad thing because it resulted in the clarification of the truth and the vindication of the, church, of the truth in the church. Uh, so the division is not good when it is arising out of pride and, and self-interest, but when it results in the clarification of the truth, that is a good thing, Paul says. So then in chapter 12, uh, he moves on to uh, another topic that they had asked him about, apparently, because he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. So he seems to be moving on to the next thing that they had asked him about. And of course, Chapters 12 through 14 uh, deal with the issue of spiritual gifts. Uh, he makes the point that there is one spirit working in them to administer all the multiple gifts. And in verse 7, he says the purpose of the gifts uh, is for the edification of the church. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So again, they're not to seek their own self-interest, their own glory. Uh, they are to seek to profit others by the use of the spiritual gift that they've been given. Uh, he goes on to talk about uh, the diversity of the gifts and the unity of the body uh, so that we find unity in the diversity so that we can all serve one another with the various gifts that we've been given. But then, of course, we come to chapter 13 uh, where he exhorts them uh, in the excellencies of love. Uh, and it's interesting. He, he addresses some things that we consider uh, spiritual gifts and other things that might not be. Uh, but he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now that's interesting because we would think, well, how could you, how could you prophesy or how could you have this sort of faith or how could you uh, give away all of your earthly possessions to feed the poor and do those things without love? And Paul says, you can. You can do all of those things without love. Things that appear on the surface to be great godly deeds, uh, appear to be great moves of the Spirit, and you can do them without love, without love for God and without love for others. And when you do them in that way, it has no profit whatsoever. Uh, so he exhorts them uh, again to love each other, to love God. Uh, and, and he says in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. But love is uh, the greatest of these things, he had said at the end of chapter 13. So uh, the gifts are to be used uh, with love for God and for each other. Uh, throughout chapter 14, he then addresses the issue of proper order in the church, uh, the order of the worship services. Uh, he says in verse 33 that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then he says in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. So as he addresses their misuse of the gifts, their disordered uh, worship service, uh, he is making the argument here that the order of our worship gatherings, how we conduct ourselves uh, during a worship service, should reflect the character of the God that we are worshiping. And since he is a God of order and of peace, that should be reflected uh, in the order of our worship. Chapter 15, he then moves on to a discussion of the resurrection. Uh, and it, this almost seems to be by way of reminder, uh, saying to them that because you, all of these problems have arisen in the church, I need to remind you of matters of first importance. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also you received and in which you stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, so he's reminding them of the gospel. Verses 3 and 4 then are a great uh, summary statement of the gospel itself. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. So uh, he's given us a summary of the gospel, uh, that Christ, according to the scriptures, died as a substitute for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, uh, and, that, and then he goes on to offer uh, historical evidence for that resurrection, that Christ was seen by all these various uh, people, by multitudes even. Uh, and then he talks about, in verses 17 and 19, the importance of the resurrection. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So the resurrection is important. Uh, it's important because if it didn't happen, then we have not experienced uh, forgiveness for our sins because that would mean that Christ's sacrifice was not uh, perfect. 
and that he died for his own sins rather than ours. So the fact that he was resurrected is vitally important to our salvation. And if it did not happen, then we have no hope, he says. What did the resurrection accomplish? Well, uh, as he continues to speak in the rest of the chapter, uh, he says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, so the results of the resurrection is that we experience new life uh, in Christ. The resurrection, he says, uh, is so important that if it did not happen, then there is absolutely no point in thinking beyond the immediate moment in which we find ourselves. And he says in, in uh, verse 32, if in, the manner, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why bother with the battles that he has been through for the sake of the churches if there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, just have a party because tomorrow you're going to die and none of it matters anyway. So if it matters, it only matters because of the resurrection. That's how vitally important the resurrection is. He then asks a question in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? The rest of the chapter he then spends answering that question. Uh, what kind of body will we have in the resurrection? Interestingly, he says in verse 45, uh, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now he's speaking here of a passage that was written concerning Adam before Adam sinned. So Adam's body, pre-fall, was a certain type of body. He was a living being, but Christ, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And his argument is that the resurrection body that we'll receive is not only better than the one we have now, it's better than the body Adam had before he sinned. The end will be better than the beginning. Uh, he, he's arguing that the resurrection body will be so glorious we can't even comprehend uh, what it will be like. And he says in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So there's the answer uh, to the question in verse 35. Uh, a body that is immortal, incorruptible, uh, glorious in a way that we cannot even imagine. And then in verse uh, 54, uh, he says, when this corruptible has put on in corruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So he's quoting there from Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, verse 14, and saying this is the result of the fact that Christ is resurrected and that we will experience resurrection ourselves, is that death has been defeated, uh, that the grave has no victory over us in the end. Chapter 16 is then uh, the closing of the letter. He talks at the, the first part of it there about the collection that he's gathering for the poor in Judea. 
Uh, he talks about his ministry plans to come and visit them in Corinth once more. And then he exhorts them in verse 13 and 14, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. So he comes back again to this central theme uh, of everything that they're doing, whether it's the exercise of their spiritual gifts, whether it is the ordering of their worship service, whether it is their relationships to their spouse or to other believers in the church. Everything is to be done with love, not self-serving, but seeking the good of others. And so then he ends the letter with some personal greetings uh, and course closes it by saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you my love be with you all in Christ Jesus amen so the, the letter of first Corinthians is uh, still applicable to many many churches today and situations that churches deal with uh, division that comes because of our pride and self-interest uh, but the scriptures that spoke to them still speak to us today uh, and so encourage us to act in love towards one another let's pray